This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two people that I know very well. So we have um, Andy McMahon, who's the head of MLOps at NatWest, and Leanne Fitzpatrick, director of data science at the Financial Times. So thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Really excited. Yeah, really excited for this. (laughs) Good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to delving into this. So where we always start, um, Andy, I'll let you kick off, but just give us a brief intro into your background and, and journey to date, if you would. Yep. Um, so I started back to kind of undergrad and then PhD. So I was a physicist back in the day, um, really interested in how things worked. So that kind of led me that direction, got really into computing through that. Um, and then during my PhD, decided academia was not for me. Um, I just felt there was a bigger, wider world out there. And I was kind of done, I think, with focusing on a really niche area of condensed matter materials physics. So after that, I went and worked at a startup back here in Glasgow. So I studied in London, came back to Glasgow, worked at a startup called Streamba, um, Streaming Business Analytics. I think that's where the name comes from. Uh, they were in oil, gas, logistics. Worked with them, start the data science function. Through that, learned really a lot about what it means to be a software engineer with a data science spin. So that got me into machine learning engineering. I eventually became MLOps. Was my focus. So me and me and twelve or eleven software engineers is a good way to really up your software engineering game, or <laughs> you'll very quickly be booted out the door. So I did that for a few years. Uh, then went to Agreco, where I was a senior data scientist and then led their analytics team, their team of data scientists. So uh, world's biggest provider of mobile generators for power, diesel gas generators, solar cells, etc. Um, so we work in cool projects like the Olympics or uh, you know, the Ryder Cup for golf or um, humanitarian disasters, anything where you need mobile power. And we worked a lot in predictive maintenance and a series of other forecasting anomaly detection problems. Uh, and then a few years ago, joined NatWest, um, first to head up a sort of nascent, I would say, ML engineering um, group. And now that's transformed into me me leading the initiative behind MLOps for the bank, really, or for a data and analytics function. So I basically try and lead a center of excellence on what best practice means for MLOps across the piece uh, and how we can roll that out to build more robust and scalable solutions in the organization. Nice. That, that's me. Nice. Thank you very much for that. Leanne, do you want to do the honors? 
Yeah, I feel like that's a lot to contend with now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I'll do the same. Uh, My undergraduate, uh, quite different to Andy, I'm a bit of a polymath. So I did my undergraduate in maths and music. Um, I'm one of of those people that did a random mix of A-levels, including textiles and history and maths and music, and uh, didn't want to part ways with my creative side, uh, which I still haven't, though it's on blurry screen I do have a mannequin and my sewing machine table right behind me so that's that's sort of the copy of mine um and then after that uh, I fell into the dark side and did a master's in financial mathematics so uh, that was where my love for quant and uh, risk finance came from and at the time um, I was studying in Leeds and I wanted to remain in Leeds even though I'd lived in uh, London all my life and moved to the north and I'd realized how much nicer than North was so I wanted to stay, stay in Leeds and just in listeners yep. yeah. yeah well I'm sorry <laughs> like, um London's lovely but yeah the North the North is now where my heart is um even though I work in London um and so uh found a job as a uh, risk analyst which back in those days was a uh, another way of saying data scientist I guess because uh we were doing things like building decision trees and logistic regression uh, models for determining uh, lending decisions. Um, so I know, Andy, you're probably very familiar with that with people that do those types of things at NatWest. Um, and uh, after a few years of doing that, I, similar to Andy, went on to a startup path. And uh, that was where being sat in a room with a whole bunch of infrastructure, DevOps, engineers and uh, front end and back end engineering and being the only analytical person saying, how do I put this machine learning or data science or statistical learning model into production uh, opened a whole new avenue and uh, ended up kind of spearheading me into this, what we call now like MLOps uh, world, but essentially how do we productionize machine learning and data science um, and kind of running around uh, Manchester saying, hey, I'm using this thing called Docker to deploy my data science models. Is anyone else doing that at the odd meetup? Uh, so that was uh, a good six years of uh, my life and then took me to Austin and, and back. And then my last role, I was uh, heading up um uh, data science for Talk Talk, the telco provider. So, all were similar like predictive maintenance, but also um, sort of customer uh, models. So, and then now I'm doing something similar at the FT, uh, where I'm both kind of spearheading a very uh, fairly mature data science team, but figuring out how we can improve our production uh, capabilities and how we deploy things in a in a more fit for purpose and scalable way. So, I get the best of both worlds. I'm a, uh, get to be really hands on with kind of what's going on in the data science, but also my passion around MLOps and putting things into production and, and making that scalable. Yep. Well, thank you very much for that. Most appreciated. So um, I think in terms of the Financial Times and NatWest, everyone in the UK and probably the surrounding areas will very much know who those two businesses are. Um, but obviously, we've got listeners that span 128 different countries, apparently. So um, it might be good just a very brief kind of strap line on who NatWest is, Andy, and then who the Financial Times are, Leanne, if that's okay, just so the listeners have got some context, and then we'll dive into the meat of today's topic. Yep. Uh, So NatWest Group, as as it mentions, are a group. So they're a group of affiliated entities that span everything from retail, commercial, wealth management, investment banking, etc. So series of different banking and insurance firms basically lumped together. And... We're one of the biggest banking entities in the UK. So one in four businesses bank with NatWest Group. We have several million customers who bank with us. 
I think one of my favourite stats that I hear, uh, it'd be interesting if Leanne knows if this is correct or not, because we use it all the time. I think a third or close to a third of sterling transactions globally come through NatWest systems at some point. So we have, we have tons of data. So basically, yeah, we, we're, a, we're a massive part of the British economy, huge, huge retail base, but also we do, as I say, cater towards more uh, commercial um, wealth management type activities as well, um, and within the within the group, there are many different franchises catering across all that. Um, just very briefly on the data side, within that we've got a data and analytics function that spans across all of those as well. So there's a kind of centralized data function that helps more centrally across many different franchises, but also some of those franchises have their own data and analytics functions as well. So it's a bit of a bit of a federated hub and spoke type model going on. Mm, nice, yeah, Leon FT. If you would. Yeah, so the FT is a global media newspaper organisation, uh, very famous uh, for reporting on uh, the financial markets. Um, so uh, typically attracts a lot of kind of investing, uh, investors and uh, those looking for really um, uh, truthful financial reporting. But also our kind of our values are that we are an independent, honest um, and uh, kind of thoughtful organisation when it comes to our reporting and our our news um, and that kind of goes through and through everything that we do in terms of our equitable nature and we're very equitable when it comes to the way that we run as an organization um, and we're very an inclusive uh, inclusivity is really at the heart of kind of our people and our culture uh, and that really shines through um, I work with a, a really high proportion of women in data science which is lovely um, and my leadership team are, are, are majority women which is mm-hmm. lovely interesting yeah very good um well let's jump into the reason that we're here then so obviously if i take the listeners back to season two andy you'll have to forgive me i can't remember what episode it was but obviously we, can we, had, kill, don't worry. <laughs> we we had a very good conversation then around the, the i guess the, the positioning of mlops as it was at that point in time um i guess from a maturity standpoint i'd be keen to hear from you first andy but uh, have we progressed much over those last probably 12 months it's been, I'd say, give or take? I, th- I think we have. I think um, there's been process across multiple fronts, and I know we'll kind of maybe come into these. So I think on the on the tooling side, there's far more tools available now. There's a lot more platforms and companies that have came online and say, we cater to a piece of the MLOps stack or the MLOps process. The big cloud providers have also provided a lot more tailored offerings, I would say, in the MLOps space, more model monitoring, more model management, a more cohesive approach in certain ecosystems. We're heavy users of AWS. We definitely see that in the SageMaker ecosystem, et cetera. So I think tooling-wise, definitely. I think the the biggest thing, though, has been a bit more of an understanding of the processes needed. So it's becoming a bit more of a an understood language among data practitioners about what we mean when we say MLOps. Um, still not perfect, still not completely agreed upon. I think we'll all bitterly argue about the the fine details, but I think people generally get what we're trying to do now, which is is good. But it but I think it's also highlighting to everyone how far we've got to go, and I know we'll dive into that in the session as well. Um, and then I think I think in terms of people, I don't know if this is progress, but it's definitely the landscape has changed, and you'll notice this, Kyle, obviously through the recruitment lens does now roles like MLOps engineer and lots of other things coming in. I think I think that's 
that could be a double-edged sword. It's it's good on the one hand, we're recognising there's a gap that needs to be filled and there's this this um, challenge we have, not just of getting models into production now, but also of running them operationally and what that means and what kind of people we need. The danger we can have is that we rewind back to the birth of data science and just think there's a unicorn out there that will solve all our challenges, um, which is something I'm painfully aware of. I think with some organisations will think, oh, hire some MLOps engineers and everything will be great. So I think, there's been, I think there has been progress across those fronts. I've definitely seen more maturity. I think, however, we're we're still we're still not quite in the full throes of everyone doing MLOps. I would say I think we're mm -hmm. still people are still taking their first tentative steps and still trying to work out what it means for their organisation. They're still adapting to a world where getting into production is no longer the challenge. Really, the challenge is what you do after production. At least mm -hmm. that's my view. I'd be really keen to hear what Leanne thinks. Yeah, absolutely. Go on then, Leanne. What's your take on the current state of the kind of machine learning and then MLOps kind of? I'm going to be really landscape. boring and say I couldn't agree with everything that Andy said more. And um, <laughs> so, without repeating all of that, I think there's a there's a few critical things that I think I think we we have really come on so far, and I think there's a really good baseline understanding across the general practitioner base of what best practice actually looks like. And then there's there's variations of that when you go into the tooling. Um, but in terms of the general, like what does it take to go from development to production to maintain maintenance? That I think we've got our heads around and that feels like really robust. Um, I'm also really excited that the practitioner, like the vendor um like field for practitioners has become really varied and um really really healthy in the sense that like i think a lot of vendors now are being very honest and and realistic about that they can't solve the end-to-end -end pipeline just like you can't have a data science unicorn to do one thing for everything for every company um they can't offer everything in terms of that end-to-end -end kind of full life cycle and therefore it's how do we get to a point where we pick and choose the right things to put together and i'd say that's the next bit that's really difficult um and a lot of a lot of places are still like playing between and i think we might chat a little bit about build versus buy i think there's this expectation that just being able to string all these different uh vendor toolkits off the market together is really really simple in-house and that's still really quite difficult but i am really excited that you know a lot of our challenges around monitoring are, are becoming a lot easier than they were say even 12 months ago I think um, kind of leaning into Andy's point around getting things into production, but then what next is really the big challenge area because it's such a people and culture uh, reliance. It's so dependent on the organization you're trying to embed machine learning, data science, like predictive and prescriptive uh, decision making within. And how do they how does that actually get embedded into your organization is such a people focused thing. It's similar to any kind of data democratization program where there's there's a two things that kind of have to come together is that there needs to be like an education and an understanding piece, which by definition, this field is quite uh, has a lot of mystique. Uh, it's kind of like a privileged field. It's hard for organizations to wrap their head around. It feels like it's for the privileged few. Um, the kind of machine learning and then machine learning ops is like another level of like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Coupled with actually, we can't even get the bait, some of our basic like functionality, right? Let alone trying to put this sophisticated data science model to determine all of our decision making when actually MLOps is solving a lot of that. It's just another decision in the big life cycle. So that is the bit that I think is with the people in the loop piece that we're never 
fortunately, I don't think any of us are going to be out of the job anytime soon because the machines won't be taking over the world. Um, but I, I don't know how we solve that still. Um, and it's a yeah, it's an interesting challenge and it's a it's a fun one to have, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting and fascinating in equal measure because obviously, you know, there's still so much conversation out there in the broader data and analytics kind of landscape, you know, where most organizations are struggling, as you said, with some of the most basic challenges, right? You know, <laughs> where where is our data? How do we get access to it? But yeah, in other contexts, it's, you know, we're talking about ML and then ops and then putting these together. And I, I guess in terms of best practice because you touched upon that there kind of interested to see whether you both agree on what that looks like and then I guess the caveat to that is you know is that kind of contextual to the organization that you're sat in Andy I'll, I'll come to you how, first how, how long you got how, how <laughs> best well, I mean, what, what is uh, what is best practice look like <laughs> um yeah I think I think um try to think of something controversially I won't agree with no, I'm joking <laughs> uh, so, so I think I think um we probably agree now that ML is within software. I think I think there was a bit of exceptionalism for a couple of years. Personally, that's how I viewed it. That this whole thing about get some people who really understand the algorithms, get them access to data, put them in a room, and hey presto, we'll create millions of pounds of value. I don't I don't think that I don't think we're as naive as that anymore. I think I think we recognise that it's it's not that. Um, so I think I think we've recognized that it's part of a software and basically you need to embed machine learning processes, machine learning pipelines inside products. And I think we've we've recognized then that you need to get closer to so I think best practice is about good software engineering practices, things like all the DevOps world, right? That doesn't go away. All of that still is relevant. Uh building machine learning is just software. But also because we've now recognized we're building products closer alignment to to product teams and ways of thinking about products and product development is probably a really good practice. Um, and then finally, and maybe on the, the operational side, we can we can look back and kind of go into any of them in depth. I think related to the point about it's not a new problem, ops of software is not a new problem. Um, but I think there are pieces within ML that are slightly different and best practice entails having an understanding of them. So for instance, in the operational running of websites, you don't have to traditionally worry about the statistical quality of your data. You don't have to worry about model drift and model performance and model version management and things like that. So if you do now have a website with a machine learning component in it, you have to have understanding of what good looks like for those things. And I think we, we have we have to the point before about maturity, we have started defining what good looks like. It's very clear now you know, there's lots of ways to detect drift of models. There's lots of ways to test the quality of data. And and best practice is really just merging together the idea of building that into software. So what does good software look like? But then also having enough knowledge about models. You can stick them all together, all within the, the framework of product, I think. And that that's kind of how I view it. Now, that's not super detailed. Here's, here's a, a playbook of how to do each of those things perfectly. But I think we at least know those are the domains in which you go and search what does best practice look like for them and then bring those pieces in. I think I think, I think that's how I sort of view it. Mm. Yeah. And do you agree, disagree? Does it look, yeah, I guess, is the, you know, does the context by which what good looks like, is that contextual to the environment that a, a business operates in to a certain extent, as well as just the, the kind of, you know, theory of this is what you should follow? 
Yeah, so I guess I'll attack this from like the practitioner perspective first. I think there's a really good understanding of what is like the deployment, uh, the development and deployment life cycle. So, you know, you grab some data, you experiment, then you build a model, then you validate it, then you kind of you put it into production through some kind of means. So you you you, know, you scale out once. And, uh, you know, Andy, I know you've done a great couple of different talks on this and you've got your kind of your great relationship, sorry to hijack it, between, you know, DevOps is to software engineering as MLOps is to kind of machine learning and data science, right? And And that kind of that, understanding of what DevOps, that life cycle of DevOps, we now have that kind of those best practices of that life cycle kind of applied into our own field. So from a general like hands-on practitioner perspective, I think there's a good understanding now of kind of what is um, the status quo of what we expect people to do on the kind of that that day-to-day journey of kind of building and implementing data science. And it's well, it's well documented by practitioners, but also researchers. You know, it's it's quite well the, the research environment has gone quite heavy in terms of kind of a lot of the MLOps type papers. And it's it, I think there's a good standards there. I think where it becomes difficult is what does that actually mean to a to the business who doesn't really want need to know about all the intricacies about or like what those steps they just are concerned about you know please deploy me a, a like production worthy model that's actually going to generate me value and not negative you know uh, value for example and we don't really they're not obviously there's some care for how that's done there's going to be ethics involved in that and there's going to be various parts of the organization but a very very top level the business is saying overall do my products however they're componentized make you know are are they valuable to us in a, in a business whether they give a better customer experience whether they're kind of optimizing whether they're cost saving whatever they're doing and that bit i think is really difficult still and i think where i want to touch on a little bit is like uh, Andy was talking um, a bit about model drift and kind of um, how we know whether or not production models are functioning right. Those KPIs are still really unknown to us as practitioners. And it's really that's where your question, um, Kyle, about um, context is really important because it is like any kind of when you do target setting at your business and you kind of have your annual KPIs, that's very custom to your business. Like you obviously have your general, you know, we want to do so much in profit, but actually what that means in terms of the targets that you have to hit across your kind of key performance indicators is very dependent on the business you're in and maybe you're working for a non-profit, et cetera. And I think we're not really good at creating those standards in our models. Like we're really good at saying, Here's the performance of my model in the context of whether or not like it's it's actually doing a precision recall, good quality yes. playoff. But whether or not that actually means that it's creating value for my business is completely consumed in a different way. And I have to have a domain level expertise that is totally outside of the field of data science. It might actually involve some finance practitioners, might involve some product managers who are really close to that product. And then they have to have more expertise about actually what does this performance of this machine learning model really mean? I don't really understand F1 scores. And that's the bit that I think we're not very good at. So um, I feel like I've gone down the deep dive rabbit oh, hole. No, I like it. I like it. But I think, yeah, and I think you've you've reminded me of something, Leanne. I think it's one thing I was sort of saying, we know where to go for best practices, but you're right, actually implementing it is a bit of a gap 
across many different areas. And one thing you reminded me of there was when we get into the operations phase of a solution, we have to start thinking about things that the data scientist doesn't necessarily think about. So it relates to your, your point, Leanne, but there's also things like service level agreements, uptime, you know, how resilient should my system be? And that's going to be extremely different in the case of performing predictive maintenance, working out if a generator is going to catch fire or a driverless car versus some monthly reporting revenue forecasting, you know, and there's kind of, and the thing that relates to that as well, that's a bit different is understanding of risks um, is quite a different dimension that's now come in, I think, that's quite interesting to see. Um, and from your risk background, you'll be an expert on this, but I certainly am not. And there's a lot of people I know I work with who are excellent data scientists, ML engineers, but trying to translate into the business world, just like you said, Leanne, the risks associated with what happens if this edge case appears? It uh, only happens in 1% of cases. It's okay. Yes, but could it, you know, can it destroy the economy? <laughs> you sort of, when you get to that level, you have to, the operational aspect becomes extremely important. I think that's a big challenge. That's a big question in ML ops is, you know, how are we how are we managing the risk of solutions that are fundamentally statistical and stochastic and not deterministic? And that that gets you into really interesting conversations with stakeholders and with people who hold the kind of are the gatekeepers and risk for the organization because you're trying to keep you're trying to say, look, no, we have controls in place so that in the 10% of cases where this does fail, because it will fail 10% of the time, here's how we minimize the risks. Um, and you're still doing that education piece we've been doing for years about what all that means, you know. Why does it have to fail 10%? Can you not make it 100% accurate? And you're like, that's not how it mm. works. So there's, I think I think that's a good that's a good point that relates and kind of builds on what Leanne's saying is that link with the business is critically important, not just for translating those KPIs, but also thinking about the resiliency and risk of your system as well. Mm, yeah. I mean, as as you were speaking there, Leanne, and talking about, you know, we're great at building this stuff and looking at getting it into production, but often the gap is where then, you know, how that relates to the business and the context of the business and how that equates to to value. I think that's probably fairly similar across every domain within data right you know i think we've probably been guilty for many of years of of you know building great dashboards or building great models or building a great platform whatever the case may be but the i guess the kind of business acumen component of what that means for the business why it's important what the risk factors are what the upsides are that's always been a challenge i think in terms of you know, navigating the the gap between practitioner and and business, um, yep. for, for for sure. Um, so obviously, many stats out there that have said, talked about you know eighty percent of data science ML projects fail to make it to production. It sounds like Andy, from what you were saying, that you know that that now has has changed. I don't know if there's any been any more research out there that kind of changes that. So it seems like we're moving more towards this area of you know we've figured out getting ml into production now it's more on the operational side that we need to bridge the gap just talk us through where you think we're heading in that regard yeah yeah so i kind of i don't know if we've quite switched it where we have i think the one i'd read was 87 percent, so it's nearly 90 percent fail to make it to production a few years ago i don't know if we've quite switched it round but it's definitely higher um and i think yeah like you said the challenge is now what do you do and I, th I think there's a lot of organizations that over the next couple of years will have to adapt quite quickly because 
you almost can't you can't just get things into production and leave them you know um i remember speaking to someone recently before and Maybe it might be in UK actually or someone else, but they'd sort of said, when, when do you, when should you do MLOps? And I'm like, you've always been doing MLOps. You've just been doing it badly because you've not <laughs> had a process around it, right? You've just said, right, it's running, go, leave it, and then it'll break. So so I think there's, there's a sort of really fundamental question you have to ask about how you organize your people and your processes. What what does your operating model look like? All the stuff we mentioned about resiliency and all the stuff we had mentioned about linking it to the business. Who has ownership of these solutions? Where do they sit? These are quite fundamental questions for how you organize your teams and how you structure and how you hire. So I think I think that's that's the big challenge people are going to have because there's there's almost going to be if you don't rise to that challenge, you'll have a bit of a backlash because you'll get things out in production, but then they'll fail, they'll break, they'll create big issues or you know some some other some other problem. Mm. Um, and I think. I think that's going to be an interesting thing over the next couple of years. We're going to see more and more people, as you democratize the ability to get into production, um, they'll recognize that actually it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, you, you get into heaven, you're sorted. <laughs> it's like there's, there's a lot of work still to do, basically. Mm. Um, so I think, I think the challenge for me that I see is, again, it's not necessarily about tooling, because I think the tooling's there or the tooling will make things easier, but fundamentally it's about your processes and about your designs. And you were kind of alluding to this earlier, Leanne, I think was, you know, how do you swap things in and out? So I think I think that's going to be the big the big challenge upcoming now. And people really need to start thinking, you know, who's gonna who's gonna manage my level one tickets? Data science teams haven't thought about that before. So if an incident gets raised, who who actually sees it? And how are they going to see it? Do I have an incident management system? Do I do I then hire an analyst to look at that full time, or do I have my data scientist sometimes looking at it? And then how do I deal with the people management aspect of it, where they didn't think they were hired to do that, but now they kind of need them to do it? So there's a really complex problem to solve here. That's not, I don't think it's very clear the right way to do it. But we can see some kind of general guiding principles again from the stuff that's been done before. But I think that's it. I think um, it'll be interesting to see what organizations' operating models look like and how quickly they can adapt them to this new reality. And mm. that that extends also to the idea of more models being um, like models as a service, cognitive services on the cloud providers being accessible via API. It's a different yeah. it's a different way of working as well, right? Where you you don't own that solution, but your customer doesn't care that you called an API and there was an issue. You're sharing the risk, but you don't own the actual solution. So do you need to put in any checks and balances from your side to assure that you're happy with the results as it comes in, et cetera? So mm. there's a few there's a few different levers there. I don't think there was an answer there, Kyle, but I think there was a there's no, just a, I mean, lot of, a lot of challenges that are upcoming, I think. <laughs> yeah, so you've just you've laid out every single every single challenge that, that we've got and now you know you've teed Leanne up to uh yeah, answer, Leanne, solve answer it. Them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it, do you feel that that's because, and I'll point this to you, Liam, do you feel that's because, you know, there there was so much failure in quotation marks, you know, so many projects weren't getting into production that we kind of just didn't bother thinking about, well, what happens once we get there? It was just, we need to get it there, basically. Once we figure that out, we'll kind of figure out the rest later. Is that is that what you think kind of has played out in many businesses? 
I reckon so. And, and I mean this in the best way possible, but I think it's coupled with a little bit of like ignorance around just like, oh, we want some of this thing that's going to generate us this capability. We want some of that ML and AI in some situations. And yeah. so just naivety of just what what that actually meant. And I think that plays into kind of Andy's comment. If you are like um, an organization that's leaning into kind of third party um, AI and ML applications where you're just either chucking over some data for it to be trained on or just using something off the shelf for some kind of decisioning, it's likely because you don't internally have the expertise um, to like build those types of applications or services yourself. And therefore, do you have the expertise internally to actually do those checks and bounds, as Andy mentioned, to on that third party? And is there a complete, it's an unknown unknown, if you don't know that you should be doing checks and bounds, whether that be from an ethical governance practice or just from a fundamental functionality, is the health of my business going to be okay by using this service? Um, if you don't know that you should be doing that type of thing, then you're not going to hire to have that capability in house. And you're not. So it's one of those, I don't think it's like, I'm not talking about some kind of malicious ignorance or naivety here. I'm talking about just the state of our field being so nascent, people just picking up and plugging things in and then not thinking about what are the like, what are the rules of engagement I should have here? And, and, you know, if you think about onboarding a new software license, there's always some kind of due diligence that has to. And I don't think we have through, I just don't think we've got the practitioner expertise to come up with those good due diligences. If I look at like a due diligence around like a data software capability or an MLOP software capability, it's definitely not asking the right type of questions that I like in-house want to be seeing of it and that's through no fault of anybody it's just that we don't have the right the right heads in the right places sometimes um and because we're like you know we're trying to put two very different um levels of expertise together um so that's i think that's a real difficulty um you know, I, I think I, I've seen lots of things happening in like the legal space where they're hiring more and more kind of AI experts to help with this sort of stuff. And I think that's quite exciting for us in terms of kind of the MLOps journey that we will be on in terms of what that means for the operational aspects that we have to embed in terms of I would love there to be a world where there is like an ethics framework that's actually practical that means that really really means something to us that isn't just kind of a checkbox exercise for the sake of it those those types of things and I think that's where I do touch on the value piece because all of the all of this what we're talking about really is like maintenance costs right there's a cost of maintenance and therefore your organization has to see that there's a real value like let's say you've put something into production and it's generating the organization three million the, the organization's super happy they're like right next year we'll have this again and maybe like you'll eat even more performance out of it and we'll get four and a half million and there's like all this you know confidence in, intervals of saying right if nothing else changes there's to andy's point there's no model drift but then there's the other part that's just the model functionality. We're not talking anything about the, like the product functionality here of like the investment that is required to make sure that thing, the 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 thing, the product itself is up, performing, doing its job. And to Andy's point about like level one tickets, yeah, if it goes down at three a.m. or it suddenly starts outputting like complete nonsense, which this yes. has happened to me, like, and you know, in the middle of the night, you know, many many organisations ago, fortunately, we're like. 
model goes wrong, right? And you suddenly have to send out like a awful email to all your clients to say, oh, <laughs> this yeah. model didn't actually give the right answer for the last six hours. So we've made a wrong decision on like some kind of end customer in some situations. We don't necessarily have a way of doing that in a like a like a like normal standardized way. Like we know that and kind of in the software world, like if you have cyber attacks, etc. I'm not talking about kind of AI cyber attacks here. I'm thinking I'm just talking about fundamental things that go <laughs> wrong with machine learning services that are to Andy's point, very different to kind of engineering practice because there is a level of stochastic and kind of probabilities and prox and, and probabilities that we see are only proxies for those probabilities, right? It's not actually a real probability. It's just a proxy for the probability. It's still a proxy for the likelihood that that thing's going to happen. And so that introduces a world of uh, like chance that a lot of organizations, we we as practitioners sometimes sweep it under the carpet because if we said that with every model that we output, no one would be using them. You know, like, no, people are like, what do you mean the confidence intervals are like really, really hard, like too yeah, yeah, wide, yeah. Yeah? yeah? And we would, we would, we might as well pack up and go home. So, yeah, it's like for those, I guess, 1% of incidences, Andy, I don't know what you think, like that happen, how much investment do we have to have for when yeah, it no, go wrong? No, I, I think you're totally right. And, the way you're describing it, Leanne, is kind of I was I was kind of gonna ask you if you felt that I feel like we're on another sort of sales education. You mentioned education earlier. There's another education piece that's ongoing. Initially it was about what is machine learning, what is data, why should we collect data and analyze it? Now it's this question about why we should invest in the operations and the running of these solutions. And I feel like it's a bit of a harder conversation to have. It's not as kind of big bang super cool you know if you mention this on your kind of in your annual report people will be like oh they're doing ml tick tick you know or or if your startup's going to help your valuation if you say you're doing mundane operational stuff that keeps the lights on for these solutions it's it's a harder thing to sort of say look you give me quite a lot of money to run this properly mm. um, and i wonder if you Leanne, are kind of finding that I'm, i think i'm i'm finding it as kind of it's interesting because mlops on the one hand is a really hot topic but when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it you're sort of saying yeah i need x amount of money to to just run this people are almost slightly disappointed because they wanted to go and do the next new shiny thing i just wonder if you're experiencing that as well yeah, and I think I think it's another play of the. It depends. On, I'd say it's the context of the organisation. I'd say right now I'm in a really fortunate place where the FT kind of does the certain individuals within the FT who get it, and they, the FT is really excited about what we can do with our ML capability, and uh, really bought into the conversations that I've had around. Okay, if you want this, these are the before we we always kind of caveated. If you want this, then we have to do all of this. Now we're, I'm talking much more around. Okay, there's a life cycle that has to go with that, and that that looks more like a product life cycle or an engineering life cycle. Yeah. Where I worry is that if you look at this in the engineering world, and you look at kind of your BizOps teams or any kind of operational engineering or your DevOps teams, those are a very like lean teams, which they should be. 
but if you look at those in comparison to say your like front end engineering um uh like number of people or the number of applications that you're creating and then the the, the weight of responsibility that might leave on a devops team or a kind of a biz ops mm. team or whatever you're kind of internally at the ft we have an engineering enablement team and i kind of see that interchange when we were talking about you know who deals with the incident tickets i've always had this naive thinking of well it's okay if we get to the right kind of capability then we could just kind of you know streamline any like major incidents off to whoever deals with any general engine software mm. engineering incidents so that would be like this ideal world and i don't have to have a data scientist who wakes up at 3am sort that which we don't at the moment but you know mm. that could be one way of dealing with it but those teams generally are always kind of kept quite lean so yeah. it's it's how I don't know because and I don't know what the general answer is. That, that's probably one for like chat uh, from a CTO kind of chief technology officer how they make those trade offs between kind of incident <coughs> management and um, yep. and actually like building things to uh, uh, kind of scalable for the future. Mm. I think we've got the exact same challenge now in the machine learning space because really is a you know, product software engineering problem when we talk about it from an MLOps perspective, but we're not always applying all of those learnings that we've we've got in those worlds. No, no. Mm-hmm. I think I think you've got the added challenge of, I said before as well, it is like soft classic software engineering, but on the other hand, it isn't. <laughs> There's those specific elements that do make it different. So it's like you hand them over to your classic, you know, site reliability engineers or your DevOps engineers or whatever. Just look at this and go. What? What the hell is this? I, I don't, what does it mean? The Gini coefficients drifted outside this. What? what? <laughs> you know, and that's that's not their fault, right? They're absolute experts in their area. But I think we do have to start wrapping our head around with our teams about a world where a data scientist will be woken up at three in the morning because something has drifted, and they need to do a bit of diagnostics and kind of or understand what's going on. Um, and we need to get into the mindset of where CRL one support the initial level of support basic incident tickets where they are they are trained up to be able to triage it to go to any of a data science a data engineering or a classic software engineering team and there's kind of just all these new skills that need to need to sort of come in um but it needs to be sprinkled throughout everybody i think everybody needs to know enough to put it to the right person um yeah yeah, I agree. And I think there's a prerequisite for that as well, that it's like we're still not very good at even triaging the stuff before it gets to us. Like, because, you know, a majority of the models that we actually produce at the EFT data science team, I'm fortunate that a lot of them are batched. So I came in being like, oh, we should be doing some more like, um, you know, low latency, real time stuff on the website. But it actually protects my team from a lot of these scenarios because we're using things in a batch like way and that works for our business so i think there's there's another level of triaging which is don't sign up for something that isn't useful for your business like isn't useful for your business because actually you might end up making a more of a rod for your back and your team's back because you've you've now introduced these different capabilities that actually don't generate you that much more kind of not talking about monetary value necessarily, but like value for the business Mm -hmm. to have things not, you know, running low latency or 
yep. streaming and actually the 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 capability was fine batch and now you've got yep. this new service that you've got to figure out how to support all the time and that's I really like I think it's a very delicate balance mm. um and I don't think we're very good at knowing I've certainly fell, fallen into the trap of knowing which side do we want to be on more especially when it comes to the capabilities we want to be able to do to support like our growing business versus the realities of actually you know what do the like what can our people give to the organization that isn't asking too much if that if that makes sense yeah 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 because i think if you yeah exactly if you do if you do something because you feel you have to are you willing to take the the risks and the operational expenditure etc with them and i think i think a lot of the times the answer would be no and i think i've definitely had that conversation we're saying we can go these two approaches one sounds great in the headlines and the top line to everybody all the stakeholders but on the other hand you need to double the team who are going to support this and like you said leanne they're going to have to be really strict about when they fix things and people will get woken up whereas if you run it this way it's a bit, it's a bit less kind of interesting <laughs> but it's maybe maybe a more stable longer term play but yeah this is a, this is all the stuff you come into exactly this is this is the reality of mlops i think mm. Yeah, this is also the greatest episode ever. I've not said anything for fifteen minutes, so um, <laughs> <had> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've actually been to the toilet and come back, and you're still talking. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so, just to bring it back to to tooling, then, because I mean, it sounds like what you're saying there, from a you know, getting into production. All right, we figured that out. The scalability of this, in terms of generating business value out of the other side of it, all comes down to this operational piece, and you know the the kind of robustness of the structure and, you know, compliance and rules and people and, and all of that type of, of good stuff. I guess what role do the vendors then play in this journey? Or in your opinion, is it not on them to be helping us with that ops side? Because I imagine like many software providers, you know, the 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 initial the initial kind of need and ask is we want we want a tool that's going to get us into production that we can use to do that right is the kind of tooling space advancing with the maturity of the the overall landscape do we feel leanne <laughs> you want to, I feel bad. I feel like you should go first one day. <laughs> no, no, I could be on dangerous waters. I was enjoying just bouncing off the wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think I think. Back to our very original point when we were saying about how's the last 12 to 18 months been, I think there's a lot of really good things happening in the vendor space. There's a lot of good things still happening in the open source space. Um, I think these are really difficult problems to solve that really do require domain expertise of your business. And so when we talk about vendors in that situation, really what you're starting to hint on is buying a you know software license to do some part of the capability but also investing in the consulting expertise that might go with that to embed it in the best way for your business and that's a time and a costly process that most most leaders in this space that I speak to are not necessarily equipped to always have that luxury and so for the most of the time we're figuring it out ourselves um, and that could be you know also from a like a self-confidence perspective like if you ask me I always 
feel like I'm the best person's place to really understand what we need in terms of our production capabilities and embedding data science and machine learning into the business coupled with the domain expert of the expertise of the business because I'm in the business doing the doing speaking to the stakeholders and also on the ground with the data scientists who are delivering the models so that why would a third party be able to do a better job than than that Mm -hmm. that there's a you know I think when it comes to if you're wanting to just as an organization bring these things in off the shelf to use so the likes of kind of IBM Watson, for example, where MLOps comes into power now is that you can just use an IBM Watson, say, um, model off the shelf that then is running and you can kind of trust because they're embedding a lot of like those MLOps practices. So you can take that and also there's a like a standard around, OK, this thing is performing in the way I want it to. It's doing the right thing for my business. When it comes to then if you're doing things in-house yourself, then that's where you've really got to build that capability in-house. There's no there's no getting around it. And there are things that you can do that off the shelf to help with some of that. But um, it's like, it's, again, it's that trade-off. Um, I don't know. And, you know no, no, yeah. I don't know if I waffled again. No, 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 no. I think totally, totally get where you're coming from, I think. Um, I've, I've definitely found that, to the point you mentioned, Leanne, about the balance between the vendor relationship, who's taking the lead, who's doing what, and can the vendor provide more consultancy-based services? I think that's because this is such a young space. The vendors are learning as we are, I think, as organizations. And I think they're quite open about that. They're saying, like, you know, speaking to people and they're like, you might be our fourth customer, <laughs> but we've learned a lot from those three customers and they're big customers. So we've got a lot of experience. It's nothing like going to, you know, a classic database provider. 10, 15 years ago or something. It's to- it's a totally different ballgame. I think they're quite open to that. And I think where vendors can really differentiate themselves is where they have really expert people on boards who are there to help translate that gap, as you were mentioning, Leanne, between what you as the business expert are saying as the domain expert who's got an understanding, appreciation of data for your organization and the business context you operate in and translate that to their tool. And then they can be really... The ones that are that will win, in my view, are the ones that can then quickly adapt their product to meet that need. Because I think there's no there's no standard interface yet. Okay, we've got APIs and all that, but that's such a small part of it. The big part is that there's almost process engineering that has to happen with these vendors. I'm finding is you're sort of saying, right, I want your tool for monitoring, but how is it going to integrate with my incident management software? And they may have never seen that particular incident management software before. They have to do something a bit slightly different. We say, oh, we have particular security requirements because we're regulated in XYZ way and we can't access the internet. Can we install locally? So there's lots of things where vendors will have to make sure their products are very flexible. And I think I think we are seeing that, but I think it's kind of it is is a very fast moving field, like all of it. But I think the the vendors that will differentiate themselves are the ones that can provide expert consultancy in this area as part of that that onboarding process. And I think you as a as someone going out to market, as a leader going out to market, you're really sort of shortchanging yourself if you don't leverage that and say, look, I'm I'm kind of not just here to buy a few licenses. I want I want you to tell me how we should use those licenses and I'll meet you halfway and 
we'll we'll take the lead from the business domain expert side, but you really need to help us understand the processes we should build around it, not just kind of dump it and leave it. Um, so I think I think those will be the vendors that that kind of succeed, and I think that there's a really good opportunity there for organisations to leverage that and use it to really up their game in terms of what knowledge they have internally. And we've done that with vendors we are partnering with. We sort of they'll be really good at knowledge sharing. They'll run sessions for our teams and stuff. And it's not your classic, you know, here's how you log in and use the tool. Sometimes it's that, but sometimes it's also here's MLOps generally. Here's what model monitoring means. And all of that is just good stuff, right, that you're getting on top of whatever you're paying for licenses. So, mm. so I think teams should be leveraging that as much as they can. Yeah. Obviously, we started to kind of creep into the build versus buy here a little bit. I'd be keen to get your thoughts on that. I am conscious of time. But I guess it kind of sounds like there's some good off-the-shelf products to kind of get started on this MLOps journey. But the ops piece really often, because it, it is so um, related to the context and the environment by which you put it into production, that kind of back-end ops piece really needs to be built internally. Yep. Is that is that, have I kind of got that right? I think I think so. And I think the way the way I've always approached sort of projects, teams, wait, thing, new new initiatives really is you sort of bootstrap it. So you initially start with your very, it's just like any data science project. You start with your kind of rubbish POC, which might just be using open source technology and it's not customer facing. And then as you understand and learn more and start building in the muscles and the team and in the organization and the understanding and education, then you can start saying, right, this has actually got legs. It's going to, it's going to grow quite a lot. I now want to go out to market. And I think, um, I think that's just a natural way that I, I've I've seen it work. The problem, not the problem, but the the pitfall people can have is they think, I think we spoke about this with you before, Kyle. You think you buy the tool, oh, it's all solved, hmm. and that is the real danger. If you if you kind of buy first and you haven't got those muscles and that knowledge and the capability and the right people hired, where they just think, right, I've bought the MLOps platform. How's my MLOps doing? And you're like, well, no one's running it. No one knows how to integrate it. No one's logging into it. Like, no one's, there's still tickets that generates in another system that no one's looking at. So, so I think it's kind of, it's not helpful. It's never, it's never build or buy. It's kind of, it's usually a blend. But I think in a space where, although best practice has been defined in certain parts, the kind of the holistic view just needs to be grown within your organization a bit. I think it's often, build a little bit and then start seeing where you can buy things and where you can optimize and you know all benefit from this this tool that's way better support in this part because we really know how that works etc i think i think that's how i've sort of viewed it before mm. don't know about you leanne yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head i think the only thing i can add to that without repeating everything you've just said is probably that gets to a certain scale right where if you're running mm. thousands <laughs> of predictive services in uh in production and you've built that whole capability in-house, there's a there's a weight there in terms of kind of resource to support that, that it may be better at that point to think about uh, going to a vendor who's like, that is their bread and butter is thinking about scaling and load balancing high volumes of application, that machine learning applications, and, and that being their, their, their like core business model, so that then you can repurpose the people that you've had in that team doing that to actually help you with that operation, the context piece. Where So it's, it's more about freeing up the resource to put the minds where your biggest challenge are. That's kind of what I'm more kind of 
I think about this is is where is where is something that your business is doing that can't be solved by a, like an off the shelf solution, and that is really contextual on your on your data mature your ML ops maturity journey, because that might be if you're like are you you know got like us for example you know we have about. 90 odd models 40 of which were in production right so we were at like a kind of a middle-ish maturity journey let's say before that like thousands of and so our challenges are very different and where I need the brain power is much more around getting those scalable solutions to be able to get to the point where we have over 100 models running uh, asynchronously and then to the thousand right so then when I've got there, then I'm going to want to free up that that brain power to then think about, OK, well, how are we going to manage that as a business so that people know which model to choose at the right time? And again, that's a human in the loop problem. So that's how I think about that. I think there's a real like real great thing for vendors on the market to really tap into what is it where are you in your in in your journey and what can I offer you for for where that is so that we can free up the right brain power to challenge to address the problems that we can't solve because it requires domain expertise around how your business works Mm, yeah interesting yeah well um super super insightful stuff as i said conscious of time i guess where we will finish um i'd love to get some predictions from you both um over the next 12 to 24 months and then oh, no. 12, 24, 12 to 24 months i'm going to have you both back on and we'll see how you did like a, the, the, oh, God, the world's no. longest the world's longest quiz <laughs> I am, go on andy right for me i don't i don't know if right so it, my, my prediction will be alluded to a bit earlier I think we'll see a lot of companies having to quickly change their operating models and how they organize their teams in order to support the models that they're now firing into production relatively quickly compared to what they were doing before. I think as well, the move towards a more machine learning as a service model will raise interesting questions similarly. So there's still operations required there, but it's a bit it's a bit different maybe. It's about building systems that call to lots of systems and integrate that. In a, in a sensible way and then you provide a bit of the USP of your domain knowledge and business uh, knowledge into there um, and then I think one final thing that's I don't know if it's a prediction or just something that I'm thinking a lot about is all the stuff we've seen with these large language models and chat GPT and all of this great stuff right I'm really fascinated by how we're going to build ops processes around the use of those because I'm seeing a lot of stuff that's kind of frightening me about using them for mission critical applications when it's well known that their truthfulness is not what they've been optimized for so i'm kind of i'm interested in like what's what is llm ml ops look like <laughs> so i'm kind of going to be thinking about that for the next while maybe see if i could if i could write something about that so that's that's kind of that's that's where i'm thinking a uh, bit of operating model so it's a bit of a uh, bit of organizational change and then there's kind of more existential thing about these these large complex models mm. yeah leanne what do you think yeah, to piggyback off of Andy's last point, I think this whole, I would love to be in a position where we've got this ethics around a lot of these kind of like chat GPT and how that how that's going to be consumed. And, you know, the, the kind of risks associated to that really like transparent to people. I think I think that's probably very ideological and not not very practical, but 
I would love to say that we've really got the ethics thing down um, much better as a, a practitioner community. I think, and you know, <clears throat> if I start challenge myself two years ago, I always was like, we're never going to get monitoring sorted in, in our field. It's just too difficult. And actually, there's some really good monitoring out there now. Mm. And we've really started to like solve that. And, you know, especially with the complexity of, of much more stochastic models and, and the, the what happens when you try and monitor those without just constantly saying there's an alert 24-7. We've, we've sussed out how to do that. So I, I have hope that the ethics thing could could be solved and I guess my other aspirational thing of what I would like to see is I'd like really to get back to that world where we talk a lot in the more general data field about you know two data engineers to every like analyst I'd love to be in a world where we really see um, the ML engineering field kind of propped up for the the capability it can really provide and and really invest in the product people that need to go alongside with that without kind of the expectations of them just being another data science team, i.e. they're creating machine learning. No, they're really acknowledged for what they bring to the table, which is um, standing up really healthy, uh, long-lived products um and and the project management that has to go with that so i think that that switch to investment in not just data scientists but the 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 people that go around that the the kind of the delivery element the product element and then the actual engineers that come with that um and i think that's at the heart of leadership to to really make that happen yeah absolutely well andy leanne thank you so much um for joining us i feel like we could probably take this to a two three hour episode quite easily <laughs> if, if if i let you two just kind please, of carry please. On for... <laughs> um but thanks so much for your time it's been uh, really insightful and um yeah I'm, I'm sure you'll get a lot of uh linkedin messages about it when we go live Thank you. Thanks for having us. No Thanks problem. so much, Carl. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. Right. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Bye.